570 WTBN Pinellas Park, 100.3 W262CP Bayonet Point. Online portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This truth found in verse 19 is perhaps the most misunderstood statement of the entire passage that we've been studying. And I might add the most significant because to miss this truth taught here by Jesus is a very serious matter because it involves the question of who enters God's kingdom and who doesn't. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will begin a careful study of a challenging Bible verse and a topic that could be the most important question in the universe. Who decides if a person spends eternity in glory with Jesus or in agony in an eternal lake of fire? Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He's been teaching for the past couple weeks from Matthew 16 about the nature of the church. It seems there's disagreement about uh, nearly everything Jesus said in his brief introduction of the church. This concept of Peter having the keys to heaven has confused many people over the years, including yours truly. It is an amazing level of authority that Jesus gave him. But as with the other aspects of the nature of the church Jesus just touched upon here in Matthew 16, the rest of the Bible helps us clarify our understanding of what Jesus meant. As with most of what we read, especially in Scripture, context is the essential ingredient in understanding. When we know the cultural context of the original readers, the local context of the surrounding verses, and the overall context of God's Word, the meaning of otherwise obscure verses becomes clear. Pastor Steve will be starting off with a quick review of what we've been covering in this series about the nature of the church, and then we'll move on to this mysterious but important comment from the Lord. Here's Pastor Steve with our lesson. Once again, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I think we've gone over this so much you should have it memorized by now. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 18, Peter is receiving these words from our Lord, and Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. We have come to actually our ninth study, but who's counting, on the nature of the church. And as we've been examining our Lord's words to Peter these past few weeks, we've discovered really some of the most precious statements Jesus ever made about the church. And yet, as precious as these statements are, have you noticed that every one of them, without exception, is surrounded with controversy? Every one of them. And the reason these statements are so controversial is because over the years, there have been so many different views and opinions regarding 
their interpretation. That's one reason why this series has taken so many weeks, because in our attempt to arrive at the correct interpretation of our Lord's words, we've had to carefully and thoroughly work our way through each of these church truths, explaining them from a biblical framework. How do we arrive at the correct interpretation? We have to work our way through an understanding of what Scripture says. For example, the first key truth we discovered about the nature of the church is that the church, Jesus said, is built upon the firm foundation of the Word of God. He said at the beginning of verse 18, he said, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, in telling Peter that he would build his church, Upon this rock, Jesus identifying Peter as that rock. That's what his name means. Peter means rock. And he was identifying him as the rock in the sense that Peter would be the primary spokesman of the, of the truth, of the gospel in the early church, whose solid, firm, rock-like preaching of the word of God would be the foundation upon which the first converts would form the church. In other words, this is, this is simply a statement that the church would be built upon the truths of the word of God and that Peter would be the first and primary apostle to proclaim those truths. And yet, as we know, for centuries, this statement has been misunderstood by millions upon millions of Roman Catholics who think that Jesus was exalting Peter to function as the supreme head of the church, commonly known as the Pope. But that is not the only issue that's been misunderstood from this section of Scripture. As Jesus went on to declare, I will build my church, he gave a second truth about the nature of the church. But it's it's also one that has generated a great deal of debate. You see, in addition to being built upon the firm foundation of the word of God, Jesus also said that the church would be under his sovereign headship. He said that in... Verse 18, he said, I will build my church. Now, in examining that statement, we made two important observations. The first observation had to do with Christ's declaration that he would be the one responsible for the building of the church. He said, I will build my church. That means not a man, not an organization. I will be the one building my church. This is a promise that he would be the one responsible to bring lost souls to himself. In other words, he's the one who, in his sovereign power, would build his church by making believers out of unbelievers. He's going to do it. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that the way he does this is by his sovereign choice, number one, in election, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's his sovereign choice in electing some. Then in our lives, at a certain point in time, he breaks into our lives and he regenerates us. And by his sovereign power, he converts us. That's Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, caused us to be born again. Now, that's the sovereignty of God. And yet, is it not true that the sovereignty of God has become one of the most controversial and divisive doctrines in the history of the church. In fact, there is a whole association of churches, some even in our area, who in their doctrinal statement tell you we will not discuss or teach about the sovereignty of God since it's so divisive. Well, you know what? As soon as you say that, you've already declared what you believe about that. You've declared we don't believe it. 
So uh, it's a divisive issue. Yes, more people have debated the question of whether people are divinely elected to salvation or whether they come of their own free will than any other theological discussion. More people debated the sovereignty of God concerning election or free will more than any other theological issue. So the very question of, of how Christ builds his church is steeped in controversy. The second observation concerning Christ's sovereign headship over the church has also invited a great amount of disagreement. When Jesus said that he would build his church, he was making a declaration that his church belongs to him. He purchased the church by his own blood as he died for the church. He was making it clear he would have a special relationship to the church, a unique relationship. He would be Lord and head over the church. The church belongs exclusively to him. The question is, how does he rule over us from heaven when we are now on earth? The answer is he rules us through his written word, his written word. According to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is, it says it's translated inspired. It means God breathed out. All scripture is God breathed out. And it is profitable, Paul said, for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. In other words, God has given us the Bible as his authoritative voice. Why? For the purpose of teaching us about himself and how he wants us to live. That really sums up what scripture is about. It's God's revelation to us, telling us about him, telling us about how we should live in light of who he is so that we please him. And yet one of the major theological debates during the last couple of decades has been over this very question of whether or not a person can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. You see, there are many people who profess to know Jesus Christ as their Savior because they've walked an aisle in church, they've prayed what's known as the sinner's prayer, who think that they don't need to submit to him as Lord over their lives. And so his word essentially has no impact on their lives. No impact. They think that obedience to him is quite optional. They would divide him being Savior and Lord. Now, it's important to know that when the Apostle Paul spoke of people like this, those who claim to know the Lord, but who deny having a relationship with him by the way they live, Paul referred to them as unsaved, as non-Christian. Where? Well, he wrote in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, he said, they deny him. Powerful statement. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. In other words, in spite of all their claims to be Christians, the way they live reveals that they are not. They are not. They've never come to to true, genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Jesus himself said essentially the same thing when he asked a group of people who heard him teach one day, He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? I mean, why would you say I'm your Lord, but you don't obey me? And then he went on to illustrate this by that very well-known parable of the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man who built his house, meaning his life, upon the rock, meaning Christ's words. And so when the, the storms came, I take it he means the storm of judgment, his house stood, his life stood. Because he had been forgiven by Jesus Christ. But the foolish man who heard the same words 
and yet they had no impact on his life. He built his life upon sand. And so when the storm came, the storm of judgment, his life collapsed because he had never been forgiven. His life was built upon his own philosophical views and perspective of life. So we understand that that the first two key truths that Jesus gave about the church, its foundation and its headship, have controversies surrounding them. But the controversy doesn't end here, because as we moved on last week to the third key truth about the church, we also discovered some disagreement there, too. The third key truth that Jesus gave about the church is that in addition to the church being built upon the firm foundation of the word of God and being under Christ's sovereign headship, Jesus said that the church that he builds would also be invincible and indestructible, would never die. And we see that at the end of verse 18, where Jesus said the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, the primary debate in this statement does involve the expression, the gates of Hades. As we saw last week, although some contend that Jesus was speaking of Satan attacking the church, but not able to prevail against the church in the sense that persecution will come, but the church will continue to exist. That really doesn't appear to be our Lord's point here. Now, I think that's a biblical truth. I think that's correct. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying here. There may be an avowed application that involves that, but that's not his main point. You see, when one examines these words, the gates of Hades, in their most natural Jewish setting and, and context, it's really easy to see what Jesus was talking about. In using the expression gates of, of Hades, he wasn't using it as an offensive weapon used by Satan. Satan doesn't pick up gates and and storm against the church with that. That doesn't make sense. The gates of Hades is a synonym for the power of death. That's how Jewish people understood it. That's how the Old Testament speaks of of that. That's how the rabbis would have understood it. That's how these Jewish disciples would have understood it, the power of death. Therefore, our Lord was simply teaching that death will not have power to confine his people, the church, to the grave. In other words, this is a precious promise that all believers will someday rise from the dead and be resurrected to be with Christ forever. Now, this is a comforting truth. It's a precious truth because it guarantees that though we die, we will live again in the presence of our Lord. And it's a truth that was intended by Jesus to give courage to believers who would be facing persecution and the very real possibility and even probability of martyrdom. And yet, I I think that some have completely missed the point and think that it only means that the church, as a religious entity, will continue to exist throughout history. I do think that's true. I don't think that really hits what the Lord was, was talking about. And so there is some controversy here, even if it's not to the same heightened level of the controversies involving the other issues in this passage. But as we move on, we're going to continue our study of the church by looking at the fourth key truth that Jesus revealed about the nature of the church. It'll actually take us two weeks to cover this and then our series will be over. But I want you to know this one is also controversial. In fact, in fact, it's not only controversial and misunderstood. This final truth found in verse 19 is perhaps the most misunderstood statement of the entire passage that we've been studying. And I might add the most significant because to miss this truth 
taught here by Jesus is a very serious matter because it involves the question of who enters God's kingdom and who doesn't. So we're going to take two weeks to go through this and, and not rush over it because it's so significant. And the fourth key truth that Jesus revealed about the church is that Note this, the church has been given the authority to declare who enters and who is excluded from God's kingdom. The church has been given the authority to declare who enters and who is excluded from God's kingdom. We see this in verse 19. Speaking still to Peter, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, the first question we're faced with as we look at this verse is, what did Jesus mean by the expression, the keys of the kingdom of heaven? We really won't be able to understand what loosing and and binding and binding and loosing means unless we first understand the keys of the kingdom. See, in this final statement about the church, Our Lord told Peter that in building his church, he was going to give him something called the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So what exactly did he mean by these keys of the kingdom? And why did he give them to Peter? And what's Peter going to do with these keys? Well, first of all, before we determine what Jesus meant by the keys of the kingdom, we want to be very clear that we understand what he didn't mean by this promise made to Peter. And what he didn't mean by this promise was that Peter would have the exclusive right to decide who enters and who is excluded from heaven. You see, there are many who believe, based on this statement, that Jesus has assigned Peter to those pearly gates. And you're not getting by him unless Peter okays it when you, when you die. And that's the result of this erroneous view is that there have been all kinds of tasteless jokes that have arisen about Peter standing at the gates of heaven, saying all kinds of bizarre and odd things to people who hope to gain entrance. I looked up some things online this week, and it is bizarre and tasteless, too. That that stuff is not only nonsense, it's theological heresy. Because Jesus Christ, and not a mere man, is the one who determines who enters heaven and who is excluded from heaven. Now, how do we know that? Because Jesus has told us that. In fact, if you look back at Matthew chapter 7, Jesus made it very clear. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, starting at verse 21, Jesus said some of the most sobering words we read in the Bible. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The will of his Father in this setting is to come to faith in him. And then to obey him is evidence of that faith. But Jesus said there'll be people on that day, that day of standing before him, trying to gain entrance into heaven, who will say to him, Lord, Lord. And verse 22 says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Sounds like these folks were involved in some type of what what in our day today looks like the charismatic movement. And they're going to say to the Lord, hey, we did this. We did. We prophesied. We did this miracle. We cast out demons. Let us in because we did all of this. And notice they're speaking to Jesus, not to Peter. What will Jesus say? And then I will declare to them. I never knew you, meaning I, we never had a relationship. There was never any intimacy with us. 
I mean, obviously, Jesus knows about all people and everything about them, but he never had a relationship with them. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They may have professed to know him, but by their lives, they deny him. So we read in that passage, Jesus said on that day, they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, they're not saying to Peter anything. We also see the same truth in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus speaking about what will take place at the end of the seven year tribulation period when he returns to earth to establish his kingdom. We read in Matthew 25, starting in verse 34. Notice once again, it's not it's not Peter. It's not any apostle. It's it's him. He's the king. Verse 34. Then the king. He is the king coming to establish his kingdom on earth. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's to believers. Notice it's Christ who says, come and enter into my kingdom. But in verse 41, we read, then he, meaning the king, will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So I just want you to see that Peter in giving him the keys of the kingdom is not the one who stands at the gate and you got to figure out some way to get by him to get into heaven. So we need to understand the keys of the kingdom given to Peter have absolutely nothing to do with him being at the gates of heaven, nor does Peter or any man determine who enters or who's turned away from heaven. So the question still is on the table. Then what does Jesus mean by this, what do the keys of the kingdom of heaven mean and what do they have to do with Peter? Well, if we're going to correctly understand the meaning of the phrase keys of the kingdom, we have to get even more basic. We first have to establish the essential function of keys in general. What do keys mean? You see, keys in Christ's day, just as keys today, serve the same basic purpose. Keys were used then, they're used now, to either open or lock a door. They either open a door to let someone in, into a place, or they close a door excluding that person from entering into a particular place. But there is a difference. There is a difference the way keys were used back then and the way keys are used now. In a biblical context, the ability to use a key, if you were given a key to open or shut Shutting a door, it meant that the person in charge of that key had authority. He had authority to either admit or bar someone's entrance into a place. A pastor friend of mine who was raised in a Catholic home and went to a Catholic school told me how as a young boy, a teacher told him that St. Peter was not going to let him into heaven. She had said that people like him don't get into heaven. Well, Pastor Mike was really disturbed by that. But then she went on to tell him that if he went around to the side of heaven, there would be a window. And if he knocked, someone would open it and lift him in. Well, Pastor Mike spent many years as a young lad thinking he had a sure way into heaven. Well, praise the Lord that he later found out the true words of eternal life and became a gifted Bible teacher. Misconceptions and false teachings have led untold numbers of people away from the truth. But as to the true understanding of Jesus telling Peter that he would give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, we'll have to wait till the next verse by verse because our time today is running out. I'm glad you could join us for today's class as Pastor Steve Kreloff teaches from Matthew chapter 16 about the nature of the church. 
Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're looking for a church home, or if you're just visiting Clearwater on a Sunday and looking for a place to worship, I think you'll feel welcome at Lakeside. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. Or take your web browser to lakesidechapel.com for more information. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside. And we have our own website where you can find information about Verse by Verse, about Pastor Steve, and about how you can help support Verse by Verse if the Lord is leading you that way. The web address is versebyverseradio.org. We also have every broadcast in this series available on our message archive page, along with hundreds of other programs, all at no charge. The website again is versebyverseradio.org. This is your announcer, Jerry Peterson. Peter has always fascinated me. He began as someone like the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. He was all bluster, but fell apart in times of crisis. On top of that, he was socially inept. He would blurt out the most inappropriate comments, and Jesus would have to set him straight. Yet, after he and the other apostles received the Holy Spirit, Peter became one of the most courageous and effective preachers of God's Word in all of history. He initiated the church with that famous Pentecost sermon where 3,000 Jews came to 